Good morning. Welcome again, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. Really glad you're with us. Uh, Our church is going through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We are now at Matthew chapter 9. If you're using one of the blue church Bibles, I think we're somewhere in the 800s. I can't remember. Matthew chapter 9. If you're new to the Bible, big numbers are called chapters. Little numbers are called verses. Jesus is in the middle of doing a bunch of miracles uh, near uh, his home base in the northern part of the Holy Land. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's help in understanding his word. Father, we thank you for these precious words written down for us thousands of years ago so that we might know clearly who you are as you've revealed yourself to us in your son Jesus. Help us to see clearly uh, his goodness, his glory, and his majesty this morning as we see his love for sinners. We pray in his name. Amen. One of my favorite uh, pieces of literature is Flannery Flannery O'Connor's 1964 short story called Revelation. Uh, Most of it is taking place in a doctor's waiting room uh, where the main character is this grotesquely racist and self-righteous woman contemptuously evaluating and commenting on everybody around her. Uh, And as she's doing that, occasionally she's hearing snippets of gospel songs playing on the radio, and she sings along with it every once in a while and goes back to commenting on everybody. Uh, I'm going to start off today with a couple quotations from that story. I have slightly edited it for language, lest I get canceled. (laughs) Sometimes Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. On the bottom of the heap were the poor and trashy. Those are my words. Then above them were the homeowners, and above them the home and land owners to which she and her husband belonged. Above them were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses and much more land. But here the complexity of it would begin to bear in on her, for some of the people with a lot of money were common and ought to be below her. It goes on. Usually by the time she had fallen asleep, all the classes of people were moiling and roiling around in her head, and she would dream they were all crammed in together in a boxcar being ridden off to be put in a gas oven. It goes on. Later in the story, If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and all that I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. I could have been different. She was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. Uh, Like many of the characters in Flannery O'Connor's stories, Mrs. Turpin is meant to be a modern-day version of the kind of people 
clashing with Jesus in our passage today. We are in the middle of a whole string of miracles in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And here in the middle of those miracles, you have a series of three conflicts. Uh, Last week, the first conflict was between Jesus and the Bible teachers. They are offended about the kind of authority that Jesus is claiming. This week, the conflict is with this group called the Pharisees. More on them later. They are offended, uh, not about the kind of authority he's claiming, but about the kind of followers that he's seeking. Like Mrs. Turpin, the Pharisees are smug and put together, and most of all, pious. And so they cannot understand why Jesus is so interested in hanging around such sinful and dangerous people. They refuse to believe that Jesus could be so deeply interested in saving people so unlike themselves. I wonder if you are having a hard time believing that today. Uh, Who do you think Jesus has come for? Did Jesus come for nice and pleasant and pious people? Or did Jesus come for outrageously and disgustingly bad people? In verse 9, we read this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. We've just been hearing about Jesus doing a bunch of spectacular miracles, huge crowds gathering. They can't believe it. Uh, And in a sense, this little episode, as short and as uh, mundane as it is, is also a little miracle. The fact that Matthew, the tax collector, would respond at all to Jesus' call to become one of his students should shock us. Now, why should this be so shocking for us? Because Matthew is one of these outrageously and disgustingly bad people. Taxes in in a Roman province were probably significantly lower than the taxes that most of us pay today, but they were collected in a way that was significantly worse. Tax collectors were not just hated because... People did not like paying their taxes. That's pretty universal. Uh, And they were not just hated because the taxes funded an oppressive and a wasteful empire. Uh, They were not just hated because the taxes went towards all kinds of things that were beyond the limits that God has set on governments. Uh, St. Augustine said in the 5th century that without justice, a government is really no different than a band of robbers. People hated the tax collectors in first century Palestine for more than these obvious and common reasons. Uh, First of all, they were hated because they were viewed as traitors. They were ethnically Jewish contractors working on behalf of the pagan occupiers, the Romans. And so because of their constant constant, uh, contact with the Gentiles, the Jewish authorities viewed tax collectors as ceremonially, religiously, Unclean, which if you know anything about the Bible is a really big deal, especially in the Old Testament. But on top of being traitors, tax collectors were also exploiters. They were exploiters. Uh, Back then, the way that tax collection worked uh, was that the Roman authorities would auction off the rights for tax collections in the provinces to the highest bidder. Uh, So if somebody said, I think I can get a million dollars out of the province of Judea, uh, some, this guy over here says, no, I think I can get one and a half million dollars out of the province of Judea. The, the Roman Senate would say, okay, great, highest bidder. You get to go collect the taxes. So then these aristocratic businessmen who had bid on tax collection would hire local contractors, like Matthew, 
they would hire local contractors to collect the taxes for them. And whatever they could get on top of what the businessmen owed the Senate was theirs to keep, no matter how they did it. Extortion, fraud, blackmail, gotcha clauses, lots of fine print. I mean, imagine if the mafia took over your neighborhood and hired your neighbors to collect your dues for their protection and said, we'll pay you with whatever extra you can keep and we're never going to really clearly communicate how much you're supposed to collect. And so the tax collectors in the first century working for the Romans got very, very wealthy doing this. Uh, But of course, they were utterly despised uh, for their own corruption, but also for their association with the hated Roman occupiers. And so because of all this, uh, tax collectors in the first century were totally excluded from Jewish synagogues. They wouldn't even let them in the door. Uh, And their testimony in Jewish courts was inadmissible because it was assumed that you were a horrible, lying person to start with. Here in Matthew and all throughout the rest of the gospel accounts, uh, the word tax collector is a synonym for sinner. They just are used interchangeably. Uh, Even Jesus himself earlier in this gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one time simply just uses the phrase tax collector uh, as a catch-all term for somebody who's really evil. Uh, So these are really, really bad people. And Matthew is one of them. He's actually the guy, we think, who wrote this gospel account. He is a social and a religious outcast. He's engaged in a system that is inherently evil. And so it's amazing that Jesus would be interested in him, of all people, as one of his students. Uh, We've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus calling fishermen to be his disciples. Uh, Fishermen were certainly very far from the top of the society, but they were also uh, not really anywhere close to the very bottom. Uh, These men, the fishermen, were just running their family business. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But there is something inherently wrong with what Matthew is doing. And so it's amazing that Jesus calls him right there in the middle of his work. And he says, hey, I want you to leave all that behind. I want you to come be one of my students. You are just the kind of guy I've been looking for. I suppose it would be kind of like if today Jesus was walking by a pornography studio or a meth lab or an abortion clinic. And he said to somebody there, hey, what are you doing after work today? I'm redeeming the universe and I want to use you. To accomplish it. It's amazing that Jesus would call somebody like Matthew to be his disciple. But it's also amazing and even miraculous that Matthew responds like he does. He gets up, he leaves it all behind, and he follows Jesus to live in Jesus' way and on Jesus' mission. Now remember, Matthew is giving up a very cushy and a very comfortable life. The word of Jesus is powerful though. Jesus can transform anybody's life. There is nobody so wicked that the call of Jesus cannot really and totally get a hold of them. Maybe some of us this morning need to remember that as we look around at the world or maybe we look at our own hearts and we see so much evil so powerfully at work. We need to remember that Jesus' word is so much more powerful than any amount of sin, any amount of wickedness. But now we move on to the heart of the story. We move on from somebody who is very bad now to a group of people who are very offended. In verse 10, we hear that Jesus heads over to Matthew's house for a dinner party with Matthew's friends and colleagues. Matthew is excited to introduce all of them to Jesus. And it's not hard to imagine what kinds of friends would have been willing to hang around with somebody like Matthew. 
in the wards of St. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Matthew's dinner party would have been a wretched hive of scum and villainy. And Jesus, here in the wretched hive, is the guest of honor. You hear in verse 19 that Jesus is kicking back with many tax collectors, many sinners. Elsewhere, we hear that at least some of the guests at these notorious dinner parties were prostitutes. The point is that Jesus is hanging around people who are spiritually bankrupt and morally outcast. Much of the point and the shock of this passage is that Jesus, and by implication, his church, welcomes and goes to very bad people. That Jesus and his church befriends very bad people, hangs around them before they get themselves all cleaned up. But that does not mean that Jesus then and now, it does not mean that Jesus merely affirms sinful people in their sin. Somebody once pointed me to this story uh, as a reason for why Christians today should, in the name of love and welcome, simply accept all kinds of sexual behaviors that the Bible clearly teaches to be sinful. But it's clear from the passage and many other places that Jesus calls everybody to repentance, even if it's not necessarily the first thing out of his mouth. And it's clear that Jesus is not afraid to call sin for what it is, even in this passage. Jesus says sin is a sickness that left untreated leads to death and hell itself. And like today, back then, it was the same. Most sinful people did not want Jesus to tell them that they were sinful. And so most sinful people refused to follow Jesus, just like they do today. Most of the time, spiritually sick people think that they are pretty much healthy. And so they get angry when they hear Dr. Jesus diagnosing them with a terminal illness and offering to have the only... He says, I am the only one who has the cure. But even so, Jesus goes out of his way to talk about the diagnosis and the cure. He does not just act nice and hope that people will eventually ask him about how they can be healed. And so it's important for us to understand that these meals are not just entertaining. This is not just entertaining somebody. It's not about just putting on a nice front, uh, making sure your kids are on their best behavior, getting your house nice and clean so you can impress your boss or uh, impress your neighbors. This is not what's going on in these meals. Instead, this is hospitality. It's very different than entertaining. This is hospitality. It's a meal of relationship and fellowship, friendship and welcome. It's ultimately aimed at reconciliation with God, which of course must entail repentance. Meals and guests like this are one of the most prominent features of Jesus' ministry. But he's not just doing it because he's a chummy fellow who just likes hanging around interesting people. Uh, In many ways, what Jesus is doing is a theological statement. Jesus is showing, by hanging around with sinful people and having meals with them, partying with them, he's showing that he's come to bring the human family and its history to its final joyful climax which in scripture is often described in terms of an extravagant feast. Uh, We read one of those accounts earlier from the book of Revelation. The end of history is described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. But it's not just a theological statement about what Jesus is bringing into the world, what he's come to do. It's also a social statement, and that's the part that's so offensive. Uh, Jesus is showing what kinds of people make up the new human family that he's now forming. 
Uh, He's making a statement about his people, about the church. It's not the main point of the passage, but especially as we see this, that Jesus has brought his disciples to the meal, we also need to see that one application of the story is that we too should be seeking to extend hospitality toward very sinful people, toward people who are moral outsiders, Uh, not just people who are sort of bad or understandably bad, but people who are very bad, people that uh, you would raise your eyebrows a little bit if they came into church and wanted to sit in the same row as you next to your kids. And so because Jesus is feasting with these people, some people from a group called the Pharisees are really offended. Uh, The word Pharisee, even outside the church, uh, the word Pharisee today uh, has such a bad connotation uh, that it's easy for us to miss what is so shocking here about Jesus clashing with them. It's important for us to understand that the Pharisees in the first century were very highly regarded. These were very respectable people. It's important for us to understand that they were very well motivated. They did a lot of good things. They were something like a political party, sort of. Uh, They looked around and they saw Israelite society in the first century uh, and they rightly bemoaned all kinds of things that they saw. They bemoaned the injustice and the oppression of the Roman occupation. They bemoaned the corruption of the Jewish religious establishment. They bemoaned the widespread spiritual apathy and moral compromise among nearly all common Jewish people. They were something of a grassroots populist reform movement. They had members in all walks of life. Uh, They were seeking to call God's people to renew themselves and to renew their wider society through going back to God's word and applying it to all of life. That sounds pretty familiar. Many of those things are not bad things to seek or to do. The Pharisees prided themselves on their discipline. They prided themselves on how aware they were of what the real problems were and what was wrong with society. Uh, They prided themselves on their moral uprightness. They thought, we're great examples to everybody else. We're showing everybody what you should be like. And so we're going to miss the point of this story if we are not at least initially sympathetic to the Pharisees if we do not at least initially see ourselves in them, they rightly point out how evil and sinful these people are. They rightly point out that God's word clearly forbids all these kinds of behaviors and lifestyles. Jesus totally agrees with them on those counts. They rightly point out how the Bible warns about the danger of compromising with the world about how the way that sin can corrupt our relationships, the way that sin can spread throughout society and bring ruin on everybody around, Uh, they are understandably upset that by partying with these kinds of people, Jesus might be communicating that he approves of what they're doing or that he's even encouraging what they're doing. I mean, if you found out that your pastor was hanging around with prostitutes last night, uh, a lot of you would be concerned by that, understandably so. I wasn't. It might help to think of the kinds of people in our world who might provoke a similar reaction today. Uh, Here's one that probably most of us could agree on. Uh, When I was in seminary, I took a class on ethics, and uh, one part of that was doing some of these readings on a hypothetical situation where, I'll be discreet, somebody gets out of prison for treating children in a very vile way, and they show up at your church, and they want to start attending public worship. What do you do? Uh, There was actually somebody in the class who had this happen in his church. Half the church threatened to leave just because the person was there. 
Uh, you can think of other examples, depending on who might be the modern-day Pharisees, uh, which is kind of hard to do. The society has so many little subcultures. We're so divided. Uh, you can think of all kinds of hypothetical Pharisees. And so depending on that, depending on who you are and what offends you, uh, Jesus' guest today might be various representatives of whatever the latest stripe on the rainbow flag is. Uh, they might be racist rednecks. They might be central bankers. They might be red-hatted MAGA people or blue-haired Bernie bros. Uh, everybody, I'm sure, could agree that it would be really offensive for Jesus to hang out with Californians. <laughs> I'm from California. But whoever it might be, uh, whoever irritates you the most to think of Jesus hanging around with them and partying with them, uh, imagine Jesus doing that. Imagine that many of them are unrepentant. They have not gotten themselves cleaned up yet, and Jesus is still happy to party with them. In a sense, it's understandable that the Pharisees are so offended because their world, like ours, was full of all kinds of evil and debauchery. Uh, much of it was being gleefully crammed down their throats by the Romans. And so the Pharisees, like many Christians today, they looked with tender longing back at the good old days. Uh, they wanted to see society renewed back to what it was before, before they were so humiliated, before there was so much degeneracy, so much decline. And so they think that Jesus showing hospitality to such evil people is at best counterproductive, but more likely they thought it was dangerous and destructive. But in verses 12 and 13, Jesus shows us that the very offended are also very wrong. When Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus points to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the racists and the junkies and the drag queens, and he says, these are the people that I came to save. It's for them that I came. Now again, Jesus is not affirming what they're doing. He's not accepting them in their sin. He says, I've come to heal them. Pharisees and Jesus agree that they are sick. They agree that these are sinners. But they could not have any more opposite proposals for what to do about it. The Pharisees tended just to stay away from people like this. Uh, better to play it safe. Keep you and your kids and your family away from people like this. Uh, at best, they would maybe say to them, well, okay, we can maybe help you, but get your life figured out first. Get cleaned up first. Then we'll, then we'll talk. You can start hanging around us. But Jesus says, I'm a doctor. And doctors hang around sick people. Doctors go to sick people. And so, amusingly and somewhat derisively, Jesus tells the Pharisees, go back and read your Bibles. He quotes the Old Testament prophet Micah, where God tells Israel, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which is a, a roundabout way of saying, I care a lot more about mercy than I do about sacrifice. In Micah's day, uh, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, in Micah's day, Israel seemed to be experiencing something of a revival. Uh, marked by all kinds of pious activity and religious activity. But God says it's all a show. It's just on the outside. You have forgotten that my heart is first and foremost for people. And you are ignoring the very needy people around you. 
And so Jesus says that the Pharisees, for all of their religious zeal, are doing the exact same thing. It's all a show. God does want the outside stuff. He wants the worship and the giving and the sacrifices. But most of all, he wants our hearts. He wants us. He wants obedience in all of life, not least in the way that we treat other people, especially the weak and the outcast. Jesus shows his love for the unlovely by spending time with them, by calling them to repentance, by speaking the truth to them. And so he expresses God's own heart for his rebellious but beloved creatures. So Jesus says, I came to call sinners. I did not come to call the righteous. Maybe we should imagine scare quotes around the word righteous there. He did not come to call the so-called righteous, the Pharisees who think that they have it all figured out, who think that they are God's gift to the world, uh, who think they can just smugly pat themselves on the back as they thank God that they're not like all the sinners out there. Martin Luther said to a friend, beware of ever desiring such purity that you do not want to seem yourself to be a sinner for Christ dwells only in sinners. Christ dwells only in sinners. Uh, That should not only motivate us to imitate Christ by reaching out with love and truth to the sinners around us, even those sinners. But even more than that, this should be an enormous encouragement to you today as you face your own sins, even those sins. Because Christ dwells only in sinners like you. So put your faith in Jesus, like we've been seeing people doing through the Gospel of Matthew. Go to Jesus, receive his welcome, and be transformed. I'll conclude with the end of Flannery O'Connor's story, again, somewhat sanitized for all of you. Um, At the end of the story, the woman has been confronted, kind of like Job, with her sinfulness, uh, and kind of like Job, she has lost lost a battle with God, arguing with him. Uh, But then she looks up at the sky, and she has some kind of vision of a bridge up into the sky. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of, my words, the classes and the races she hates. And battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closely. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. In the woods around here, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up at what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus' love for sinners is the perfect expression of your own love for sinners. Your love for us. Your love for this world. Lord, help us to not become like the Pharisees, sealing ourselves off from the world, uh, thinking that we can just be sanitary in and of ourselves with our own efforts. Uh, Help us to go out to a sinful world 
And as we do so, keep us in your word. Keep us pure. Keep us from compromising. But most of all, help us to see Jesus coming to us and welcoming us. Help us to see your love for us in him. Teach us to come to you in all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our filth. Help us in his name. Amen.